Have you ever liked someone and just been a bit confused about why they don't like you back? You're nice, friendly, polite to their family and friends, but in the end, none of it matters. Is it because of where you're from or is it your own family or maybe your standing in life? Sometimes we just never really know the truth. Even if it's not about liking someone, sometimes we're just confused by the decisions of others, right? In chapters 19 to 23, or the end of volume 1, a few characters end up just confused by the decisions of others. And at the end of volume 1, Austin leaves readers to try and make up their own mind on some of these societal pressures. So without further ado, let's get into the storyline of chapters 19 to 23. To open chapter 19, Mr. Collins asks to speak to Elizabeth alone, and naturally Mrs. Bennet insists that Elizabeth does so. She sort of tries to get out of it a little bit, but uh, Mrs. Bennet is wholly insistent. And when they're alone, Mr. Collins proposes. Isn't that lovely? Now, this isn't really a surprise to anyone. It's really been building for a while, and he outlines his reasons why, and he gives three clear reasons. First, that any good clergyman should set an example of matrimony for their parish. That's an important one. Number two, it will make him happier. And number three, and he sort of says that this is the most important one, Lady Catherine wants him to. He even says that he won't ask for any money from her father, which is actually really kind of him. He's sort of marrying her, remember, out of guilt for this entailment since he's going to inherit Longbourn, the Bennett estate. But Elizabeth says no. She says no gently at first with one clear reason. On page 105, she says, quote, you could not make me happy. And I am convinced that I am the last woman in the world who would make you so. So it seems pretty clear to us that Elizabeth doesn't want to marry Mr. Collins simply because they won't make one another happy. Now, Mr. Collins, idiot that he sort of is, kind of dismisses this. He feels as though Elizabeth is only saying no because it's the custom of the female sex. He feels as though Elizabeth is rejecting him purely so it will increase his affection for her. I think we can all agree that this isn't something that's unheard of in the dating world, but Elizabeth is pretty insistent. And when Mr. Collins keeps saying, well, I'm sure the next time I propose, I'll get a more favorable answer. Elizabeth is really, really set on her point. She says some things here about feelings and rationality that we'll come back to in the analysis section. But Collins basically says that Elizabeth can't expect to do any better, but Elizabeth doesn't care and insists anyway. Collins' argument is that he is a good husband for her because of his wealth, not only in the position that he has at the moment with Lady Catherine, but also because he will be inheriting this Longbourn estate. Now, as you would expect, Mrs. Bennet isn't exactly happy about Elizabeth rejecting Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins starts to say, well, if she's so headstrong, she's probably not a good wife anyway. And Mrs. Bennett is furious about this because she wants to ensure that the family is well looked after and ultimately marry all of her daughters off. That's one of her prime motivators, I think. So Mrs. Bennett 
goes and appeals to her husband, but Mr. Bennett ultimately agrees that Elizabeth shouldn't marry Mr. Collins, thinking that he is a silly man. Collins seemingly doesn't really care about being rejected, except maybe some wounded pride, but he is confused. He doesn't really understand why Elizabeth would reject him. At this time, Charlotte Lucas, the neighbor, shows up and hears all about it, but she doesn't say very much, at least not yet. Then following this, there's a bit of an interlude as Jane gets a letter from Caroline Bingley. Now this letter says that the ladies have gone to London to join the men, so that means that Netherfield will be entirely empty. And she says that they'll be there all winter. But the real kicker in this letter, the thing that stings, is that Caroline says that she hopes to see Mr. Bingley, her brother, marry Miss Darcy. That's Mr. Darcy's sister. Now, as readers, we sort of take Elizabeth's side on this, and that is to look at this as a type of deception. We know that Caroline wants Mr. Darcy for herself, and is probably suggesting that if one Bingley marry a Darcy, there'll be a better chance that other another Bingley will marry another Darcy. So that is that if Mr. Bingley marries Miss Darcy, then Caroline Bingley can marry Mr. Darcy. Jane, however, being the type of person that she is, sees it as truth that Mr. Bingley isn't interested in her. And naturally, she's upset about this. And when Mrs. Bennett learns that Netherfield is empty, she's likewise distraught. Remember that Mrs. Bennett would feel at this point as though she's missed out on having two daughters married off. Now, Austen's narration lets us in on the mind of Charlotte Lucas at the start of chapter 22. Now, hints about Charlotte Lucas angling in on Mr. Collins after Elizabeth refuses his proposal are sort of dropped before, but here it's absolutely spelled out. It says that Charlotte wants Mr. Collins and that it even refers to her as having a scheme on page 119 to get him to want to marry her. And sure enough, it works. Collins proposes, she accepts, the family are happy about this match, they feel as though it's about as good as they could possibly hope for their daughter, and there are a few points on marriage and imaginary feelings that again we'll come back to a little bit later. But ultimately Collins and Charlotte share this news with Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth is naturally pretty shocked about this, uh, not because she is jealous, but because really she sees the point of this marriage. She's really upset that her friend would choose such a marriage and can't imagine that she'll be happy in it. But of course, Charlotte's view on this is quite different that we'll get into a little bit later. And volume one ends with this news about Charlotte and Colin's marriage and pretty much everyone is totally okay with this or even happy for Charlotte. That is except of course for Mrs. Bennett who is most upset because Collins will be inheriting the Longbourn estate because of this entailment and sort of complains that when Charlotte and Mr. Collins are there, they're eyeing off her furniture and thinking about where they'll put it or how much they could get for it. And Really, there's a beautiful piece of irony at the end of volume one that I'll save for the analysis section. And let's get into that now. Two key points I'd like to focus on in the analysis of this section. The first is about feelings versus rationality and what they mean and how they impact on marriage in particular, but really life decisions as a whole. 
And the second is about the expectations on men. We've spoken already about the expectation on women, but I want to look at it from a different angle for this little section here. But let's start with this idea of feelings versus rationality. On page 103, Mr. Collins suggests that he's swept up in feelings before he rationally outlines his reasons for wanting to marry Elizabeth. And it says, quote, but before I am run away with by my feelings on this subject, perhaps it would be advisable for me to state my reasons for marrying, and moreover, for coming into Hertfordshire with the design of selecting a wife, as I certainly did. Now, Elizabeth's narrated response to this is pretty hilarious, and I continue, quote, The idea of Mr. Collins, with all his solemn composure, being run away with by his feelings, made Elizabeth so near laughing that she could not use the short pause he allowed in any attempt to stop him further. And he continued, and you see there that this idea Elizabeth thinks of Mr. Collins actually being swept up in feelings is laughable. But Collins insists that he is, but he then goes to rationally outline each of his reasons for wanting to marry, which we went through in the story section. Then when she rejects him, because she thinks there would be no happiness between him, between them, he suggests that she's being irrational. After all, Mr. Collins thinks that he is a pretty good match for her. And on page 106, he really spells that out. Quote, Your portion is unhappily so small that it will in all likelihood undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. He's saying that she's so poor, it doesn't matter how attractive she is. She won't be able to get a husband as good as him. But I suppose you could argue that Mr. Collins is being both emotional and rational there. Maybe he is actually affected by the fact that he's just been rejected by Elizabeth. That's understandable, right? So what is Elizabeth doing here? Is she being rational or emotional, do you think? She's rejecting him based on the fact that she has no feelings for him, that she doesn't think that they'll be happy together. But she still insists that she's actually being rational, particularly when Mr. Collins suggests, oh, you're actually just denying me because that's what women do. She insists, still on page 106, quote, Do not consider me now as an elegant female intending to plague you, but as a rational creature speaking the truth from her heart. So she's saying that she's really thought about this and doesn't want to marry him. But it's pretty easy to argue that in fact she's making an emotional response to this. Because to a contemporary 19th century audience, the rational thing is to marry him and secure your families and your own future prosperity, particularly because of this entailment of the Longbourn estate. Now that's exactly how Charlotte Lucas thinks about this marriage. Austin gives us the sense that she doesn't particularly like Collins, but sees the advantage in such a marriage. To be fair to Charlotte, this is how she's always thought. Remember from previous episodes, we discussed her practicality around marriage. And I would say that this is really summarized pretty well on page 120. This is a bit of a longer quote that I'll read for you. Quote, Mr. Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society was irksome, and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, he would be her husband. Without thinking highly either of men or of matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only honourable provision for a well-educated young woman of small fortune. 
and however uncertain of giving happiness, must be their pleasantest preservative from want. This preservative she had now obtained, and at the age of 27, without having ever been handsome, she felt all the good luck of it. So 27 in this sort of time is reasonably old, and she feels as though she needs to be married to be secure in life. A preservative, as she puts it. This is all rationality from Charlotte. And Mr. Collins, and this is still the quote from the same section, attachment to her must be imaginary. She thinks that there's no way that Mr. Collins actually loves her or even likes her. He sees the practical nature of the marriage as well. So this is an entirely practical, rational type of marriage. As much as Mr. Collins may seem as though, or at least express as though he is caught up in his emotional responses. But who cares? Well, only Elizabeth. And the question is why? It, it, it seems pretty clear that she's not jealous of Charlotte, but she seems that to express that she feels that there cannot possibly be happiness in this marriage between Charlotte and Collins. And she's upset by this, even though Elizabeth has to admit the practicality of the marriage. She says on page 123, I quote, it was impossible for that friend to be tolerably happy in the lot she had chosen. So Elizabeth is still concerned about Charlotte's happiness, even though she understands the reasons. Let's move on now to discussing the expectations on men. It's important to understand that at this time, men are still expected to find a good marriage too. We've spoken a lot about how that's expected of women, um, but it's also an expectation on men. And we see this in Mr. Collins here. Now, this is different in many ways for men because generally speaking anyway, the men are the ones with the money, but it's still important for them to find a good wife. Collins says that as a minister for an aristocrat, Lady Catherine, that he needs to find a good wife. And this is really the main reason he gives for even visiting Longbourn in the first place. And this really harks back to that opening line of the novel. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. At the time, it is an expectation that wealthy men will marry, just as it is an expectation on the daughters of gentlemen to find a good marriage for themselves. Now, the ladies of the area are all chasing Bingley when he first arrives because it's expected that he's chasing one of them too. And we'll see later how these expectations weigh on both Bingley and Darcy and even people like Wickham, uh, though that can be argued a little bit differently. But men, it could very easily be argued, are locked into an equally rigid social expectation just based on their birth. But I should admit, Austen does seem to be suggesting that things are much tougher for women. First of all, by establishing that Elizabeth is thinking about marriage in terms of happiness, that in itself is pretty shocking for the 19th century audience. But this final line of volume one is almost speaking directly to her readership. Mrs. Bennett is discussing with Mr. Bennett this entailment and how unfair it is. And she says, quote, I never can be thankful, Mr. Bennett, for anything about the entail. How anyone could have the conscience to entail away an estate from one's own daughters, I cannot understand. And all for the sake of Mr. Collins, too. 
Why should he have it more than anybody else? And Mr. Bennett responds in this final line, quote, I leave it to yourself to determine, said Mr. Bennett. Now, I think that is a really great example of Austin almost speaking directly to the audience. She'll leave it to the audience to determine whether or not something like an entailment is right or wrong. So that's the end of volume one in our podcast series. Things take a bit of a turn in volume two of Pride and Prejudice, and the story really starts to progress with some surprising developments. But I hope this has been assisting your reading of Pride and Prejudice and maybe given you something to think about along the way. So again, thanks for listening to Mr. E English Podcast. Uh, send me an email. I've put my email address in the description if you want to get in touch or if you have any questions or just thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, enjoy your reading.